All right, everybody, welcome to another episode of the Smooth Brain Inquisition, where we take difficult subjects and explain them to the best of our cognitive ability. I'm Andrew. I'm Bryant. And today we'll be talking about America's police force. So this thing is, you know, kind of dicey. We've seen stuff from Uvalde. We've seen stuff from, well, just like, you know, the 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 unarmed black people who have been shot and killed. There's yep. a lot of negative stuff about the uh, the police. And I want to make sure that as we go through here, if you are in the police force, we're not trying to bash you or anything like that. Yeah. Uh, this is more about how, I guess, what the police were established as and what they are today. And it's not a take on a person's character for being a police officer. We want to make that distinction. There's a lot of negative press because, like with most jobs, people don't talk about a job when it's going well. Yeah, like, we don't want to, like, attack police officers in general. It's more about the system that allows police abuse and excessive violence to occur. So, so I guess we should start with, like, you know, the history and the establishment of the police. So, one thing that I'm aware of when it comes to this is... uh. The, the word sheriff, which I think is pretty interesting. Yeah. So, uh, and, and this is specific, I think, to English. I didn't do any more, you know, smooth brain research here. I didn't do too much research to figure out exactly where everything comes from or how many words for heads of police and stuff. So we have a couple different words that I want to describe. And, and the first one being sheriff. And where that comes from is, uh, you know, Bryant, when you think about different towns and, uh, or let's let's specifically talk about like the Hobbit, for example. Where are the Hobbits from? The Shire. The Shire, absolutely. And then you'll have something like uh, in America, you'll have New Hampshire, which makes me think that in England there's a Hampshire, <laughs> <laughs> or you know any place that ends in that the the Shire. The shire. Um, and then you have this job that was before, uh, I guess, democratic governments or like a really well established aristocracy. Uh, you might have a, a piece of feudal land or whatever. And you would have these people who are called Reeves. And what a Reeve would do is they sort of, you know, enforced order amongst the, uh, without getting too Marxist, the proletariat. Well, <laughs> the how oppressed. far back did that go? Like what? Uh, This was, you know, feudal England. So, you know, 1400s probably. Uh, but it, this is just the, the Reeves. So basically, it's not like an organized police force or anything like that. Yeah. But there was a dude. And if something was happening, you would go see the Reeve, the Reeve of the Shire. And as English kept like going more and more popular culture and st- not popular culture, just being more and more used, people would talk about the Shire Reeve, the Shire Reeve, the Shire Reeve, the Sheriff. It would just it evolved into that word over yeah, years yeah. and years and years. There was also in the courts, that's where uh, a bailiff comes from, too. I don't that's interesting. The, the way, but they had a bailiff in the court. There were two words that got smashed together, like Shireev into Sheriff, something into uh, whatever, uh, into bailiff. So somebody who basically establishes order in the court to make sure proceedings go through and everything like that. Well, that's even like the origin of the word police comes from, I think it was the Greek polis or Latin polis. Whichever one of uh, the those two, yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, the other thing that I think is kind of cool is like people talk about cops a lot, like when they talk about police as if they're synonymous. But like in America, in North Carolina, you have a, a you know federal agent could be considered part of a police force, like yeah. the FBI or SBI or something. You also have uh, the state troopers who patrol the highways, um, which Again, it's distinguishable and different from like a sheriff's deputy, which is patrolling the town. But a uh, word that gets thrown a lot is thrown around a lot is a uh, cop. Did you know it's an acronym? I had no idea. Yeah. Uh, do you have any idea what it might stand for? I'm assuming the P is police. No. So huh. it actually stands for constable on patrol. Oh wow! That's where cop comes from. That's kind of cool. Um, another thing about the the police, uh, if you think about the police. Um, I associate, you know, like the uniforms and stuff that they wear. But the next thing, if I was to think about a physical location, would not think about the sheriff's department. I would think about a jail. So, and that, that might be from, you know, my days of watching Andy Griffith and stuff. You know, they just hung out basically yeah, where they yeah. had everybody locked up. But anyways, the the word jail, as we see it spelled today, 
J-A-I-L. That is not the spelling that was used for the longest time since jails have been around. It was actually, and you know this from uh, Elden Ring. We had this exact conversation about, I called them... Gauls, whatever yeah, I call them gals. Gals, yeah. <laughs> because the way it was spelled. So they, they used to be spelled, jail used to be spelled G-A-O-L. And that is a holdover from not Middle English, but like a later form of Middle English. And it wasn't really changed until around the 20s, which the, this is not the 1820s. This is the 1920s. 19, oh, wow. wow. It is a recent change in the spelling, given the you know length of time that the English language has been around. And it's kind of cool. Like law enforcement is not a new idea. Right. I mean, there has been some form of uh, political control or government control for yeah, as long the, as people have the existed. The oldest uh, establishment of law was probably Hammurabi's law, right? That was the thing that was translated different things like familiar. eye for an eye, tooth yeah, for a tooth yeah. kind of thing. But I found that kind of cool. Like even like, uh, and like, you know, smooth brain moment. It was either ancient Greece or ancient Rome, but actually like, the police or the equivalent of police at the time were actually slaves, but oh. they were like slaves that were tasked with maintaining order in the city. I wonder if that was a coveted position or if you got worked like a dog doing that. I have no idea. I, I it's just you know very brief things I looked up. Yeah, but I did find like the first like what we would recognize as a modern police force. Yeah, like would probably be in Paris, like the 1660s, uh-huh. and they were established by. King Louis, whatever. I think yeah, which uh, there's 14th like fifth, or seventeen Louis yeah. or whatever. <laughs> and like, but they were uniformed. They had like their districts, but they were only in Paris. And like, they were less of law enforcement and more of the aristocracy's like control of the lower class. Right. Don't it, don't mess up. We're watching the yeah, kind of thing. It was less about maintaining law and order and more about maintaining civility. Yeah. Like. Probably protection of property and stuff like that, too. No, not, not even that. Literally, like, being polite in public. And oh. so, like, the upper class and even the middle class of Paris thought, like, well, this is the only way to live. And these lower class plebes aren't living up to our standard. Right. So they had this police force to basically just, like— Hey, you, go take a shower. Yeah. Say thank you the Pretty next much. time. <laughs> but it was, it was an organized police force, and— you know, then we have, like, the Bobbies in the U.K. and everything. Right. And that's, again, a very organized and recognizable police right. force. But in the U.S., it was a bit different. We didn't just come up with police as we know them today. They had a pretty dark origin, which I think we both really talked about a little bit. Uh, like, It was largely from the establishment of the Second Amendment, which is the right to bear arms, which— um, I don't remember which person it was, but I, I want to say it was like whoever was the, either the governor or it was the, uh, this is also another smooth brain moment. It was either the governor or like a senator, not even a senator, because this is the establishment of the, uh, the Constitution. Somebody from Virginia who was very important <laughs> was like, hey, this says that they're for an organized militia for like a national, like, What's the National Guard at this point? It's a state-owned militia or whatever that can be called to do different things. And um, they're like, we can't have this be at the behest of whoever what would eventually be called the president is. We don't need these people to be, you know, for this person because as soon as we send our – what did I just call them? The National Guard to go to New York – the like, slaves are going to rise up and kill us. We need to have our own separate force. And if we don't have essentially what is a slave patrol, then yeah. we're going to be in a lot of danger. Things aren't going to be that good. And that's kind of how it all started, right? It's like the original law enforcement in this country were slave catchers. Yeah. And the whole point of their existence was to enforce policy that kept slaves from having the ability to uprise. So there were some really fucked up laws. Like, for example, uh, on plantations, uh, five enslaved men couldn't congregate together in one spot, or that constituted a rebellion. Ah. So these slave-catching groups had authority to just patrol plantations, and they saw anything that they deemed, well, that could be like, unrest or that could be an uprising. Right. 
I mean, they, could they go carried in there and whips. They had guns. They would, yeah. Ugh. It was not not a very pretty thing. No. Now to be to to go on with that sort of notion of like how they formed. I mean, obviously they're not here for the same reason that they were then. I mean, recently, well, I should say, if we're talking about how old language has changed and stuff like that, recently slavery was abolished. <laughs> if we're looking at that I mean, time yeah, frame, it has not been that long. Uh, and then also. Reconstruction and the Jim Crow South and everything like that as well. It's, okay, so that you mentioned this. So uh, one of the most shocking things I found was how once slavery was abolished, the South was very clever in finding ways to maintain slavery without it being slavery. Uh-huh. So the most fucked up thing I found were what were called vagrancy laws. So almost immediately after slavery was abolished, uh, southern states implemented vagrancy laws where it was illegal not to have a job. And what okay. happened was all these former slaves were now free men right. who needed to seek employment. Well, they also passed laws where if you were a prisoner, you could be sold, literally sold right. to manufacturers and farmers as slave labor or indentured labor. So what happened is a recently freed slave would go to a farmer factory and try to get a job be denied the job and then that owner would then contact local authorities and be hey i have a vagrant here who has no job come get him they would then arrest that person they would go to prison and then the person who made the call or contact the authorities knew well hey i need a worker yeah this person was I'm gonna buy that guy me. yeah so they found ways to keep slavery for a really long time it wasn't until like 1868 that the end of slavery was really truly enforced in the South. Uh, is that is it including like Juneteenth and everything that we just recently celebrated? Uh, I can't remember I'm when sure Juneteenth exactly. started. If it was like seventy, well, or... the issue was like you know the abolishment of slavery was a big deal, but then the Civil War had just ended. Everyone was rebuilding everything. Right. We just didn't have the federal government didn't have the strength to actually send in people and enforce right, the end right. of slavery. And it wasn't like slaves at the time had the ability to just say, hey, we're free now. Let us go. If they were even aware that it happened. Right. Yeah. And I know that some things with like the uh, com- the Confederate apologists, which, you know, we all hate <laughs> to engage. But they're talking about how, oh, yeah, well, some of the slaves, they fought for the South and won their freedom that way. Or, and like, well, yeah, they probably were told to. Like yeah. there was forced conscription. Well, there's the whole thing where one of the arguments about the south it was not about slavery was that most of the men who fought in the confederacy didn't own slaves themselves right it ignores the fact that whether or not you had slaves you directly benefited from a slave society right so yes it's true that many confederate soldiers weren't slave owners right the war was about slavery it was people say it was states rights and then you're like the state right to what like <laughs> to own a slave and it was it was screwed up but i can i think we're sort of no, no, drifted I, away from the topic a little bit so. is I, there I, a way to wrap I, it back I, in yeah i think that you cannot like, like i think slavery being a thing in this country ties directly into police racism today oh well yeah yeah absolutely yeah. like we just mentioned the jim crow slide. Yeah. i mean like it was illegal for a black person to drink from a white person's water yes. fountain and they could be arrested for that Mm-hmm. Which is stupid and obviously racist. I mean, it's, it, that's literally what racism is, um, and it was a racist policy. So, like enforcement of, I guess these these Jim Crow laws in the reconstructed South, um, it wasn't put that much on pop culture that I could see. But in speaking of pop culture, I'm just going to play a quick little sound for you so we can hear some, you know, things that we all probably, if we didn't grow up with them, we're at least familiar with them. Yeah. This day and age, to read any good news on the newspaper page. I'm Lieutenant Carl Winslow, Chicago PD. Some people say it's even hard. Bad boys, bad boys, what you going to do? What you going to do? The Andy Griffith Show. 
Starring... Well, I guess that's me. I'm the sheriff. Howdy. Also starring... So, a lot of this stuff, uh, I would say Family Matters with, you know, Lieutenant Carl Winslow. uh, That, there was episodes that touched on racism and policing. Yeah, I'm not too familiar with with that show in general, but... Uh Uh, yeah, go go on. Okay, well, everybody who uh, is at least somewhat aware of it knows one of their characters, Steve Urkel. (laughs) Urkel was on the show. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I watched the show all the time. Uh, Growing up, like, I was aware that it was a show about black people or whatever, but it wasn't like, I wonder what makes them so different. Like, I just happened to know that they were black and I watched the show for whatever But they did have several things that touched on race. Uh, one of them was where Eddie was stopped. Eddie is Carl's son. Uh, and he was stopped by the police for no reason other than the fact that he was in a white neighborhood. They harassed him. They detained him. They cuffed that him. That sounds familiar. And th- Yeah. And then uh, since Carl heard about it, he was like, well, maybe you were doing, did you have a taillight out? He was trying to, he was basically being an apologist for their actions during this. But after doing his due diligence of, you know, investigating with his son and then reading the police reports, he then confronted the officers. And it was very clear that one of them was racist and that the the other one who was his partner has been on the force for a year or something like that was learning his behaviors as acceptable policing. And he said, you know, son, why did you start with the police force or whatever? He said, the other guy said, well, you know, I wanted to uh, take, you know, some of the bad guys off the street, get them out of, you know, the public eye. And he said, just so that you're aware, you share a squad car with one of the bad guys. And that was all that needed to be said. And not to say that, I mean, it, it was it was showing that, you know, not all police are bad. This is a learned behavior. Most, like, people, I don't believe, are born racist. Yeah, I would agree and with that. so that was the thing. It's like this racism that's being brought into the police force is a learned behavior. And it's either that they learned to be racist on their own and decided to do things a certain way, or that it was, uh, I guess, more or less taught by the institution to police you know, black and brown communities or to make sure black and brown people weren't in white communities, so on and so forth. I wouldn't say it's almost when it's taught in the institution so much as it's a system that protects the bad police. Right. Like, it allows a person's worst demons to thrive. Right. Because there's no consequence to your actions. So on that notion, I'm going to play this clip from Brooklyn Nine-Nine. It's not exactly the clean... I know it's not your favorite cut. Yeah. Uh, I tried to cut it to make it a little bit clear. And two of the things that they talk about is like um, administrative leave and qualified immunity, which is to go with with that. But this is from that show. So here's this. All the officer has to say is he feared for his life and he gets thrown out. Officers get paid to stay in. Not to mention qualified immunity. And So that was basically when it comes to, you know, say the officer said he felt unsafe, Mm -hmm. like discharging a weapon when at an unarmed person and he gets thrown out. So that's one thing that we see. And a lot of that comes from the uh, police unions themselves. So the police unions are extremely well organized. Right. And if there is ever a case for officer shooting or misconduct, that's the backbone behind yes. the qualified immunity. They are mm-hmm. the ones who are trying to make sure that that sticks. Well, they even organize. So I found that any time there was an attempt by a city or state to implement change on a police force, the unions would get involved. Involved, And one of the things they would do very commonly was have the police stop responding to calls. So they would point out—they basically hold the town hostage, saying, well— if you try to pass this law, the police won't do their job. Right. And that happened a lot back with the, uh, what was it, the uh, the cameras, right? Oh, yeah, 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 so yeah. I think now they're pretty, like a regular thing. Yeah, they're pretty standard. But there was a lot of backlash for that at first. So to get into that, here's another clip from the show, and it's cut weird. 
the, the reason I'll explain this for any of you audiophiles or anything like that, during the video production of this, they strung together a series of L cuts and J cuts. And if you're familiar with that, it doesn't make sense. But basically what it is, is to explain the passage of time, like it was a long drawn up process, they cut different things together to make it seem like it was longer, but there's yeah. a lot of good information in there. So we'll, we'll listen to this. And again, apologies for the, uh, the way that it's cut. Well, if I fired them, it would trigger the union's appeal process. PBA's grievance proceedings allow for both unions and individual officers to challenge personnel actions by superiors. The complaint gets sent up the chain of command until they get someone who sides with the officers. And the courts are a nightmare. Prosecutors work closely with cops. They're not going to jeopardize their relationship by pursuing cases against them. So to get into that, what you're talking about with the unions, the unions get involved any time that either the police force in general as under some kind of legal scrutiny or an individual officer is. Yep. And they said if that case was to be taken, it'll go up higher and higher. They'll keep appealing within the the law enforcement the branch system. Yep. Yeah, to find somebody who's like, oh, no, this is completely legit. And then use that as the, the stop because there's not really anything else to do with it at that point. Yeah, I mean, you hear people say about how, like, the system is broken or needs to be fixed. But the issue is that the system is not broken. Like, I think a really cool thing I heard was, like, the system is not broken. It is operating as intended. Right. That this is how it's always worked. We're just now aware of that it's not working. <laughs> it's not working in people's us. favor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's working in favor of the police. And I also, like, one of the biggest arguments you hear from the unions is, like, in the case of police shootings, uh, they're saying how— now, every new officer is scared to use their weapon. They're more hesitant to draw their gun. And they say, like, it's negative. I'm like, well, like, that's a good thing. Yeah, they we, should, don't. we don't want them to draw the weapons if they can help it. But on the other hand, I do, like, I do firmly believe that police, like anyone else in this country, has the right to defend themselves. Right. And it's a, it's a touchy topic, though, because how do you define defending yourself when you're in a position of authority? Right. Well, and I would like to take a moment to just remind everybody you're listening to the Smooth Brain Inquisition. So in that uh, vein of defending yourself, um, there was a, uh, it's not too recent. I don't remember how many years ago it was. I know it was in the 20, te- the 20 teens and it was, uh, there was this man who was intentionally killing cops. There was a cop killer. Oh yeah, I remember that. And they ended up killing him. And uh, he, like, holed up in a parking deck, and they surrounded him and, and shot him to death. I don't remember anything about the—he's uh, not a victim. The the assailant in the, this thing. Yeah. And at the same time, there was a lot of the stuff with Trayvon Martin and—well, I mean, uh, I don't remember. I don't want to misquote, but I, I do know Trayvon Martin had already happened. The, the Florida stand your ground laws and all this other stuff. And they were talking about racism in general with that. And they said, I mean, it's not racism, but it's like, oh, you know, this guy was prejudiced against cops. True. They said that this was uh, a targeted attack on police. True. They said that there should be some kind of special exception for people attacking cops, like there was for people who assault people of color. False. Because... When it comes to civil rights and everything like that, police are not a protected class. Occupation is not a protected class. Mm-hmm. The things that are a protected class are race, religion, gender, sexual orientation, stuff like that defines, you know, a human. Your occupation does not because you're yep. free to change that. Once you sort of, <laughs> yes, it comes to like, you know, gender and sex, people would say, you know, you can't choose that. It should be protected because people are changing their sex or saying that they're non-binary, so on and so forth. That That's immaterial. I mean, you are what you are, whether or not it's on it's presented outwardly. And but you so chose to be a cop. You chose to be a cop. You didn't choose to be transgender, yeah. but you happen to be because it more identifies with, you know, the way that you should be. Or you don't choose who you love, so on and so forth. But, yes, you chose to be a cop. Uh, and, and as a... A side note, there is one person that I'm aware of, and I won't name any names, but it's one of my wife's friend's husband, who, after a whole bunch of this racism and everything like that, the police force, uh, put down the badge. He, hmm. reti- he retired from the police force. He has a different job doing something, something else. Wow. 
And I don't know if it was because of, if it was just because of the pressures and the negative appearance of the cops. It also had to do, I mean, there's still plenty of police around. He probably had a moral stance. And he was like, I, in addition to, you know, the pressures that are being, you know, exerted and uh, everything about how the perception of police operate in America, plus what I feel like I can do about this, the system's broken. I don't want to work for it. But as you said, the system's not broken. It's working how they want it to do. Yeah. Well, because you talk about like being able to choose and the thing about police, I, I think this is true for several professions. Like I, I think police and politicians, there's there's this expectation that when you're a police officer, you have to be a police officer all the time. Right. Like for, you know, I'm a a customer accounts manager, right? When I'm at the office, but if I'm not at the office, I'm not doing that job. Right. That is my job when I'm on the clock. It's true for police as well. They have their hourly like job. They go to work, they come home. But outside observers are like, no, you are a police officer all the time. You're right. held to a higher standard, which isn't fair. And I think it's true for politicians as well. I yeah. think teachers a little bit as well. So I've always been kind of torn on that one. Like, how do you... It's got to be a lot of pressure on police. Right. Well, I mean, and it's another thing of, like, reestablishing what it means to be a police officer. Because it goes within the same thing of, like, the police do so much. How can they be off the clock? Because everybody implicitly yeah. recognizes that there's not enough time in the day for them to handle everything. So we don't ask the same of firefighters. Yeah. We don't ask the same of EMS first responders. But a police officer needs to show up to a fire. They also need to show up to a car wreck or something or if anywhere where anybody gets injured. And they they have this much on their plate. So uh, they're they're also responding to oh this is something I meant to bring up at the beginning of the show. Uh, recently, there has been established a new hotline in America. If you are having negative or dark thoughts, or you are having a mental health crisis, please dial nine eight eight. That is a new uh, hotline that someone can dial. Again, if you're having a mental health crisis, you feel like you're in a dark place, please reach out. Or somebody that you know. These people are specifically here to handle that. It's it's an emergency line cool. like 911. That's so, very neat. Yeah, I, I didn't want to—I meant to mention that at the top of the show. I'm sorry that it's coming so no, late. Okay. But, uh, well, I just want to—because you mentioned firefighters, so—because I was talking about, like, the high standard on police officers. And, you know, I think an issue is that even when officers are on duty— they oftentimes don't meet any reasonable standard uh-huh. uh, in case like a police shooting. And like, I was thinking about this the other night, like police exceptionalism is absolutely a thing. Uh-huh. So for people who defend the police shootings and the excessive violence, what percentage of police is acceptable to be bad? Like, would we tolerate that in any other profession? So right. let's say, like, I don't know the actual numbers. Let's say it was 10% of officers are racist or abusing their power. Would we accept 10% of firefighters not knowing how to fight a fire? Would we accept right. 10% of doctors not Accidentally knowing? killing patients yeah. or something. So, like, I think there's a weird—you talk about pop culture. I think pop culture has created this image of police as almost superheroes. They're right. larger than life. They've almost been— like I don't I don't want to say deified, but I think they're they're placed on a pedestal that they shouldn't be placed on. Right. And they're just people, right? They're just people they, that have a job. Yeah. And that's I think I, I hate the whole idea of both sides. I do firmly believe that having an opinion does not mean you have that you're right about everything you say. Right. Like, but I think both sides of this argument have the same issue. On one hand, the the whole blue line people see police as infallible, and that's obviously an issue. Right. On the other hand, people treat police as I don't know what I'm trying to say with it. Like, so well, I mean, they're looking at it sort of like we are, where it's just a job. Yeah. Um, and with that job, there's too much responsibility. And one of the things that I can think of in response to that is there, the, the militarization of the police force. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. there, there, 
they need, I would say a SWAT team makes sense for yeah. a metropolitan area or something like that. I don't know if there's like, I don't know, in North Carolina, there's like a Chatham County SWAT or if there's an Orange County SWAT. Yeah. There might be. And, I, I don't you know. know. For, for all intents and purposes, yeah, that, that could be a thing. But at what point does the police involvement move away from uh, law enforcement to, well, I guess technically it is on the books as a law, but like if there was a terrorist threat or a hostage situation, why is this a law enforcement issue instead of a National Guard sort of thing? Well, that also goes into like, I I can't find the exact number, but billions of dollars in surplus military equipment is given to police departments all over the country. Right. And it's really hard to kind of maintain uh, when you play that Andy Griffith clip and maybe think about it. Like small town police well, yeah, have let's, military let's play that grade clip right quick. equipment. Um, let's see, where do we have it? I don't know that I actually put yeah. it on here yet. Well, I mean, we can just talk about it. Like the uh, he mentions like having a gun, right? And how yeah. he wants people to respect the position not fear the fact that he has a weapon. And I think that's kind of like what the whole defund the police movement is more about. Uh, it's not so much about completely removing funding from police, but reallocating the funds. Yeah, to where they make more sense in a more yeah. responsible and sustainable manner. Like, there's not really a reason for police to have what is basically a tank. Yeah, or yeah an ACP, having, an armored, yeah. or APC, armored personnel carrier. Yeah. So, you know, you, you have these you know, quote-unquote small-town police departments that have equipment that could be used in a military situation, and it's they're scary to look at. Like, it's not... Right, yeah. so let's... Uh, yes, yeah, play that clip. Why don't you carry a gun? Oh, I don't know. When a man carries a gun all the time, the respect he thinks he's getting might might really be fear. So I don't carry a gun because I don't want the people of Mayberry to fear a gun. I'd rather they would respect me. That's the essence of the thing. Like carrying a gun, I can see somebody, a police officer carrying a handgun. I understand self-defense and stuff like that, at least especially in America where anybody can have a gun because of the way that we choose to regulate them. And it is a choice. It's not. Yeah, absolutely. um, But. I don't know how many other nations have a militarized police force. I would wager if it's not a totalitarian government such as North Korea, uh, probably not many, if any. Yeah. Um, I don't believe, I don't think the Bobbies have a gun. They've got a club. Those clubs look mean. <laughs> yeah. uh, and you can beat somebody to death with a, with one of those clubs. But at the same time, um, there's a, we, we talked about this with the gun issue thing is the ease of use. So yeah. it's a lot harder, especially if you're hawking somebody down and who's running from you to hit them with the club. If they're evading you, than it is to pull out a gun and shoot, shoot somebody. Them. Well, I think that also goes into like, I was going to mention this before, like the police training in the U S and this was probably the most shocking number I found was that the average police officer in America receives about 500 hours of training. Uh huh. In other countries, it's a thousand to five thousand hours, and many European countries require a college degree to uh-huh. be a police officer. And our training here is focused on the use of the gun and effective arrests, uh-huh. whereas in other countries they focus on de-escalation. Yeah, and the whole idea of fear here kind of stems from that training. Police aren't trained in america to de-escalate they are trained to put an end to a crime right and that brings with it an inherent fear because he talked about having the gun causing fear yeah and maybe think about how let's say you're just driving on the interstate and you're obeying every traffic law and you see a highway highway patrolman uh-huh. what is your first reaction when you see that i tense up a little bit and i check I, my speedometer yeah. everyone gets this tense because they they know they're not disobeying the law, but seeing an officer makes you feel uncomfortable. Right. And I think, I don't know, I, I think most people feel that way because they know that person is carrying a weapon. Yeah. They have the authority to, you know, ruin your day. Right, right. 
uh, and it's well within their their purview of their job. Um, does, I don't have any research about this, but do you remember in New York they had the stop and frisk law? Yep. That's the same sort of thing that I feel about a highway patrolman. I could get stopped by a highway patrolman because my brake light is out if I happen to hit the brakes because I was worried that I was speeding when I drive past them. Most states, uh, the officers, they find like a large amount of cash in your vehicle. They can confiscate it without cause. Right. And there's just... I think there's a threshold that you have to hit, but still, it does make sense that uh, you should not be able to do that. Um, But the stop and frisk thing is like, you look suspicious. Let me see if you're carrying anything on you. That's a violation of, like, personal space. I don't know that it's a violation of bodily autonomy or any kind of enumerated right, um, such as, I don't know, what is uh, uh, the—you have your Miranda rights uh, read Mm -hmm. to you or whatever. I don't know what the—it's unlawful searches and seizures. That's the one. I mean— if they make it into it's it's the same thing. Uh, cruel and unusual punishment yep. is only cruel and unusual if it's not so common that we're desensitized. Yeah. So if that way it's it completely subverts both cruel and unusual. So it's the same thing with unlawful searches and seizures. They write in this law, so now it's lawful. Yep. So uh, it it just seems like that is an abuse of the authority that they have. Uh, in an effort to enforce law or keep the peace. It's less, they're there to protect and serve. But again, when we talk about all the different scopes of things that they're doing, those service-oriented things like showing up to a fire, making sure everybody's okay, like a bump up in a car accident or something like that, um, that is very service-oriented and that's good. But like teachers and like other government professions, they don't get paid enough to do all the things that are being asked of them. And they don't have the training to what you were saying to deal with all the things that are being asked of them. Part of it is training, like being trained to de-escalate and counsel is a game changer. I mean, studies have shown that communities that have focused more on community outreach and less on law enforcement tend to benefit from that Uh you know, we talk about like, over-policed communities in the U.S. Right. happen to be uh, communities of color. Right. And when it's, it always takes on a, a racial tone. Right. But it simply comes down to poverty. And uh-huh. one of the things I found was that uh, like, if you take racial demographics, every time a community is made less impoverished, the crime rate decreases right. at the exact same rate as the rate of poverty decreasing. Right. And then suddenly, magically, the rate of uh, police violence also diminishes. Right. So, I mean, it can it can lead into all sorts of things. A lot of with poverty comes a sense of desperation. You're doing yeah. things that you, not that you shouldn't do, but things that are illegal. Because like one of the things that I think of, and we'll talk about this on another show. But um, is the legalization of marijuana in oh, a yeah, bunch of different have, places? We're gonna have a whole show on that. So yeah. like if. If I was arrested for selling pot and I'm in one of those states with a three strike law and I'm going to go to prison because this is the third time that I caught. But I mean, I, the area that I'm in is so poor. There's not an opportunity for me to actually leave. Maybe I don't have my own vehicle, something like that. Of course, I'm going to do my damnedest to evade and add charges yeah. <laughs> that will be raised against me so that I don't go to prison for selling a gram of weed to somebody. I mean, it's just so these people are, uh, and I want to put it in air quotes. They're doing something that they they shouldn't be doing, but they have to make ends meet too, yeah. like anybody else. Now, I I don't have the same amount of sympathy for somebody who's, you know, selling methamphetamine or fentanyl or heroin mm-hmm. or something like that. But when it comes to certain things, enforceable crimes or uh, enforceable crimes, enforceable laws. There's the letter of the law, which says, hey, don't sell pot on the street. And then there is the spirit of the law, which probably could be enforced when there's a startup food truck. Mm -hmm. It's the same sort of things that guide that. Now, granted, in uh, North Carolina, uh, all marijuana is not legal, but hemp is. And so there's some. Yeah. 
CBD oils and uh, Delta uh, Delta Eight. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's um, it's there and it can be used. But I mean, like, since it's available and it can be sold, I'm not supposed to pull some out of my pocket and sell it to somebody any more than I'm supposed to have a grill on the sidewalk cooking hot dogs because they don't know any of my qualifications and health standards and purity standards or whatever when it comes to any of that stuff. So who's going to get arrested if there's two things going down plain as day? Somebody selling pot to somebody on the sidewalk or across the street, somebody selling hot dogs. Yep. I hear what you're saying. Yeah. I mean, there's sort of the spirit. I mean, you should leave well enough alone in some instances. It's a a double standard. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I want to pause again to remind everybody you're listening to the Smooth Brain Inquisition. Well, you mentioned prison, so I think it's a good time for us to kind of jump into uh, the American prison system and, well, how they compare to other nations. So one of the most shocking things about the U.S. is our incarceration rate. And I can't find a clear number on this. I found one number that I just don't believe can be true that said one in 108 adults have been incarcerated at some point in their life. That seems extremely high to me. I don't know if that's possible, but I've seen others. There's like 550 people per 100,000 are in jail right now in the U.S., and the only nation that comes close or is more than us is, uh, what do we say, North Korea. Uh-huh. But one unique thing about the American prison system versus other Western countries is a focus on punishment over rehabilitation. Yeah. And we also have an extremely high recidivism rate because of that. Right. So uh, what happens in the U.S., and this is, I think, a pretty commonly known thing, is that a non—you know, no one's a criminal until they commit a crime. Right. Right? Like, if I go to jail tomorrow, that's my first offense. Right. But— if you're in prison for like a federal offense, once you leave prison, your life is still effectively over. Right. Like your punishment continues once you leave prison. Right, right. Can't yeah. vote anymore. Finding a new job is difficult. Can't hold a weapon. Yeah. So you are far more likely to commit a crime again. In fact, our recidivism rate in the U.S. is over 50% within five years, meaning that once you leave prison, you are almost guaranteed within five years— to be back in prison. Well, and there's a there's an incentive for that too because they don't do it so much anymore. But it used to be, those were the people in North Carolina. Uh, somebody who would be in a federal or state prison would, if it wasn't maximum security, obviously, yeah. they would clean up the roadsides, pick up all the litter. They might even yeah. do the landscaping. Well, that they, comes back to the whole uh, like indentured labor, right? From the vagrancy laws and, that's, and stuff. They don't earn even minimal wage mm-hmm. when they do that. They do earn some money, but yep. they don't earn even minimum wage when it comes to that kind of stuff. Well, so I like to, so there was a, uh, I read about it years ago about like the prison system in Norway and they had a really interesting, uh, like the murder rate rate in Norway was pretty low. And they interviewed this one guy who had killed somebody with an ax. Uh-huh. And I mean, it was a, it was a shockingly brutal murder, and he was obviously arrested and placed in not even a prison. So him and some other convicted murderers lived on this house on this island, and they were each tasked with certain chores throughout the day. They were also allowed to leave freely to go get groceries and stuff and visit a friend. Like, they weren't locked down. Right. But this guy who had committed a murder with the axe, his main chore each day was chopping firewood. Wow. And the point <laughs> we see you're real good with that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> let's keep you out of it. <laughs> kind of, but that was, so that was kind of the thing though. The point was it wasn't to punish him or force him to think on his actions. But he, he did. Right. He said whenever he picked up the axe, he was reminded of what he had done and he regretted it. But the point was to show him that you're still a person, and even though you made this mistake, you were still trusted enough to take this thing that you once used as a weapon. And still work with it. And yeah. it allowed him to remain a functional human being. He wasn't, there was never a moment where he thought, I'm an animal or I'm being treated poorly. He, right. And that's true for many systems, uh, especially in the, uh, like Norway, Denmark, Iceland, Finland, all those, you know, the, everyone's favorite country countries. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. 
Well, I mean, the 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 policing and stuff of people, and then the, the imprisonment issue is another thing altogether. Like mm-hmm. that could be its own show. And it its could, own. yeah. I don't want to go too far into it. I just wanted to bring it up because the other issue is the gang culture within the right. US prison system uh, is not actually discouraged by the uh, uh, the guards and yeah. whatnot. They are well aware of the gangs, and uh-huh. it's just. It's just an accepted part of the prison culture. But the right. problem is that once you are in prison and become part of those gangs, you're kind of going to criminal school. But yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it does seem like it's a, a not-so-good thing to uh, to be, especially if you weren't involved in anything. Like I said, like uh, there's there's— I think California used to be one or still is with the three strike rule mm-hmm. and I'll bring it back to selling pot. You go to federal prison for selling, you know, certain amounts of weed. Yep. Um, and then to go into this environment to be locked down because you're, you're a nonviolent criminal at that. Yep. And you're being exposed to this stuff that otherwise you might not have, you might've had like some plants in your closet and you're just selling to your buddies or something like that, you know? There's all these different things that could have happened to put you to where you're at now. Mm-hmm. And then again, like I was saying, evading the police is probably a stronger charge than just yep. surrendering and being like, yeah, I'll sell a pot. <laughs> you know, well, it's also like once you do get out of prison, there is the expectation that you're going to maintain criminal behavior. Uh-huh. So you're under this, you know, this magnifying glass all the time. Right. Like most people commit crimes whether they admit it or not right like you know i smoked weed in college that Same. was illegal i've i've violated the speed laws i've i've done things that are illegal i've never done anything like you know felony felony level yeah say i mean and i've never uh never done a violent crime yeah but, but like but my point is that once you're out of prison you're now held to a higher standard despite being a higher risk of committing any crime anyways right and you know you can't get away with a traffic ticket because suddenly like well that's you know that's a strike against you you're already yeah you're on parole or something so it's just our entire system is designed that once you make that first fuck up your entire life is over right it it just seems pretty uh self-fulfilling prophecy isn't the thing because nobody's professing that that's going to happen to them yeah. again but I mean it, it does it fulfills it does its own obligations it compounds upon itself uh sorry I forgot what I was going to say oh that's no worries yeah. uh, one of the things that we can talk about is like in pop culture too they talk about you know some reconciliation um this is only one example of this. There's plenty of them out there, but I didn't have time to grab them all. But this is from Family Guy, Joe Swanson, mm. the guy in the wheelchair. Yeah, He's yeah. A, a police officer, and we'll, we'll listen to a clip of him explaining, I guess, uh, corruption in the police forces. You took an oath just the same as me, Sheriff, to protect and serve, not to harass and douche. Just because you have a badge doesn't mean you can treat people any way you like. And as a law enforcement professional, you have an obligation to be more ethically upstanding than the average man, not less. So that comes to your exceptionalism thing that I was talking about. And it also comes to, I guess, basically when I was explaining Carl Winslow uh, addressing another person on the police force for his racism and his partner saying, don't turn out like this guy. So there's a lot on their plate. To do this. And, and again, I want to establish the fact that uh, police officers aren't bad people. The institution no. is. Yeah. Um, and the way that they're taught to do things is not good either. Um, and to go with that, I mean, even though he's a fictitious character, everybody remembers fondly Andy Griffith. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I, I don't know that everyone does, but a lot of people do, at least from the show. He, he was a benevolent police officer. Yeah. He had a doofus for a partner in Barney, and, I mean, they were just likable. And, like, I, I, you know, I said, like, they have to have a higher standard, but also, like, when you choose that profession, you should be aware of what you're getting into. Right. Like, I did, I had a, uh, my RA in college, actually, when he graduated, uh, joined the police, and he went through all the training and everything at the very end, and then he realized he couldn't do it. Uh, and for him, it was less about, uh, 
a corrupt system and more about he realized that if a situation occurred, he did not think he'd be able to pull out his weapon and use it. Right. Which my first thought was all the more more reason why you should have stayed. Right. But his point was that if you don't do that, you are criticized by your fellow officers as well. Right. Because you could be endangering them or something. And he didn't want to deal with that, which is fair. So, you know, I, I know I could not ever be a police officer. Like, it's just not... It's not in, it's not in my blood. Um, to go with that same thing, to put yourself in danger, there's been a lot of negative press coming out about the Uvalde shooting in, in Robb Elementary. This is just a quick clip that we have here of somebody trying to assert themselves... Uh, as a controller of the situation to say, we've got to do something. There's so many of us. We're just sitting around. Another cop yeah. was caught from a body camera uh, with this dialogue. It's very short. We got to get in there. We got to get in there. He's shooting. We got to get in there. So there was somebody, there were several people probably that were aware that, why are we standing around? You know, we, we've got to do something. And so a lot of the criticism that was done about the, the idleness and everything and the chain of command and everything, I understand trying to protect your officers and you don't want yep, to yep. put more people in harm's way than necessary. But the the whole part of protect and the protect and serve thing, you're not trying to only protect your officers. Mm-hmm. You're trying to protect the people who are possibly victim to a crime. And, um, the 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 whole nature of these people who clearly did not do enough in this situation. I think we spoke about this earlier with the gun control thing. Like people say, you don't know how you would act in a situation like that. I feel because I know I would not. I would probably act the same way. I would not put myself in harm's way. Gives me the authority to be able to say these people shouldn't have signed up if they're yeah. just like me. Well, like the. You know, they also released the uh, the hallway security footage from the Uvalde shooting. Right. And to me, that was fairly damning for the officers because you had, at one point, dozens of officers in the hallway while the shooters actively killing children, and they're not moving in. They're standing there, checking their phones. One guy, one guy literally goes and gets hand sanitizer and cleans his hands. Right. I get it. I get anxious. I do weird shit when I'm nervous. Right. But eventually they have ballistic shields. They've got, they can act and they don't act. Maybe they're waiting for the signal to go. Maybe they're waiting for. uh, Well, it seems like they're waiting for someone to take charge. That never happened. And if we got to get in there, guy was there early. They should have followed his lead. If he was there towards the end. Like if your concern is, you know, causing chaos or the shooter killing more people well at a certain point you just gotta it's easy for us to sit here and talk about it yeah, but be I, Monday morning quarterbacks on yeah, this issue but I, I think that that I think it goes back to the training issue as right. well like 500 hours is not enough training to be able to cope with that situation right so well, and uh, I don't know what they do for the the law enforcement, the basic law enforcement test, the BLET that they make them all take. I don't know what happens in regards to these people if they go to like a boot camp, like they do for the military, to where essentially it's mental conditioning for you to yeah. just accept the the horseshit that's being thrown your way. You're gonna go. You're gonna lift this log in the rain. You know, this man is gonna berate you the entire time, and you might like him after the fact. You might hate his guts. But it doesn't matter. That's not why you're there. You're not there to make friends. You're there to get, uh, I guess, the shit kicked out of you, to break you down yeah. a little bit. But that's also so that they can train you in um, in a way that's a little bit more efficient because mm-hmm. you're, you're less likely to resist the information that they're giving to you. Yeah. Now, I do know that boot camp typically lasts for eight weeks for most of the people. And that's eight weeks, 24-7. You don't have time off from this. You are there. That, I don't know. I'm not going to do the math because my brain is smooth. But that's a lot of hours right there, just in general. It's getting crammed in For in sure. that short amount of time. But you learn the chain of command. You learn what to say, what to do, when to you know 
they ask you to jump how high and stuff like that. But this is specifically from a military situation where your responsiveness and your ability to do what's told to you impacts the safety of everybody else around yep. you. This isn't enforcing a traffic stop or something, a moving violation or somebody's inspection is out. So granted, I can understand why there's more training in this. And there's ongoing training as it goes too. There's ongoing training in the police. But again, I think it's less on de-escalation mm-hmm. and more on, hey, you should do this to minimize risk to yourself and your other officers, which is the wrong thing to think. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard to discuss because on one hand, like, no one wants anyone to put themselves in danger. Right. But, like, it, it, it is your job to keep others safe. And that brings with it inherent danger that you accepted the moment you put on the badge. Right. And if you're not willing to put yourself in a life-threatening situation where you or your fellow officers could be hurt or killed, then you, maybe you're in the wrong profession. Exactly. Like, 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 I know I could not do that. Yeah, I know that I would not have the ability to put myself in danger to save others, but that's why I have no desire to be a police officer right. or to join the military. That is not something that I can do. Right. So, now that I mean that being said, I mean there are plenty, plenty. If we focused on de-escalation and transition from a punishment to a rehabilitation system, yeah. The irony is that officers would be in less danger anyways. Right, right. And the, like, the work that they were doing would probably also be more palatable. Yeah. So I don't I don't understand the resistance to these changes. Like, it's not—you like know, I've laughed, I talked about before how I think uh, the defund the police movement just had really bad marketing. Right, right. Because it's not about defunding It's not about the stripping all the funds away from the police and abolishing about, the police force. It's about defunding— the aspects of police that allow violence and the uh, uh, abuse of power to occur. Right. So just reallocate the funds. They yeah. don't need to take. Uh, the National Guard could step in in particularly mm-hmm. dangerous situations because, as discussed, they're military. Yep. And, I mean, enforce laws to the spirit, not to the letter. Mm-hmm. Um, and that goes for all communities. It doesn't matter if you're poor, if you're wealthy it's it's if you're selling hot dogs yeah. scold them <laughs> so you well, don't have I'm a permit keep harping on the training issue too because it's also like lawyers go to years of school to understand the law right and yet officers in 500 hours are expected to understand enforce and enforce the law but how right. could you possibly enforce a law that you have not had time to study and understand right so a lot of the abuse of power, I don't think, is intentional. I think it's just ignorance. Ignorance. Yeah, and it's not willful. Yeah, they're they're probably they might not be. Again, there's ignorance and indifference. Yeah, you're ignorant because you don't know. You're indifferent because you don't care. Yeah, and I don't think the general population is so unkind and unwilling to learn. I think mm-hmm. they would want to know, provided that they could. Yeah, it's a. It's it's a it's a weird thing to sort of dance around, and uh, I mean, we're not here to solve the problems. <laughs> yeah, I, that's the other thing too. This is like it seems solvable, more solvable than the other stuff, right? It seems like a very solvable problem, right? With if with a little bit of more accountability and accept, accepting that there is, you know, there is a component of racism in the system yes. that needs to be addressed, uh, recognizing that. You know, police officers are trained to kill. Right. Like, that is part of the training. And, again, like, we are a nation of guns. Right. So, it's not that... I don't... I believe officers should know how to use their guns. I think that's important because if... We talk about Uvalde, right? Yeah. Right right there. There is a man who was killing children who needed to be... Stopped. Stopped. But even with that training, they didn't stop him in a timely manner so something yeah. is not working somewhere and right. I, I don't know how like you said we're, we're not here to solve the world's problems we're just talking shit but yeah like well on that bright and happy note yeah <laughs> i yeah, believe I, uh that that's probably where we're gonna be leaving the episode today um but i want to thank everybody who's tuned in to listen yeah uh thanks for sticking around and hanging out with us for an hour And uh, we'll look forward to seeing you next week. Bye.
All right. Goodbye. Think about you.